To keep up to date with everything American Civil War and UK history, please head over to our website where you will find updates, blog posts and links to all of our content, including our social media pages. You will find the link in the show's description. And this podcast also has a PowerPoint presentation that goes along with the show. So if you would like to see the PowerPoint presentation and you are listening by audio, please head over to our YouTube channel at American Civil War and UK History. Cheers. Hello everyone, I'm Daz and welcome to American Civil War and UK History. This podcast presentation is available as a video on our YouTube channel or as a podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you're watching on YouTube, remember to hit that subscribe button. And to keep up to date with everything American Civil War and UK history, you can do that via our website where you will find blog posts, updates, links to all of our social media pages. The link is available in the podcast description. And today's discussion is about the Zulu Wars and the Battle of Izamwala and Rourke's Drift. And joining me is historian Mark Wheatcroft of Mark's English History Channel. Welcome, Mark. Hello, Darren. Hello, everyone. Um, Mark, um, can you... So, let's get into it. So, um, yes, there's a great... um, little podcast i've been looking forward to recording for a long time so mark can you explain what britain was doing in south africa in 1879 please so what you need to remember is is that this is 1879 this period is at the heart of victorian britain and the height of the british empire britain has been in south africa for a very long time by this point, a good, probably a good hundred or so years. But there had been a number of challenges within Britain's presence in South Africa. So the main reason that they're there is because looking at the map, the crown jewels of the British Empire was India. That was where nearly all of the money was coming out of at that period, in the early period of, shall we say, the second part of the British Empire. We'd lost America in, the 17th, in 1781. They eventually get independence from Great Britain. And so then, at that point, all the focus goes on to India. Now, we're looking at a time period before the Suez Canal is built, so the Red Sea route into the Mediterranean isn't an option. So it does mean that all the shipping has to come the long way round. And so South Africa, down at the bottom, becomes a key component of this. And the biggest, the earliest um, settlement there is in what they call the Cape Colony. And that is at the city of Cape Town. And that being the large harbour port. port. But gradually, the British... Um, the British domination of, of, of South Africa starts to take hold. Britain isn't the only European country involved in this um, area in South Africa. We also have the Dutch Boers as well. So there is a, a friction between these two countries, between the Dutch and the British. And that leads on to something called the Great Trek. And the Great Trek is where the Boers leave the British-dominated colonies. So Britain has, there's five, there's three white British colonies 
in South Africa. You've got the Cape Colony, which is, like I say, down in that area around Cape Town. You've got the Eastern Cape, which is just slightly above it. And you will get Natal Colony. And that is the area around on the, on the Indian Indian Ocean coast. Around today, which, around the area of today of the, the cities of Port Elizabeth Dur and Durban. And then going north up to, up to the Drakensberg Mountains. Now, what happens in about 1848, I believe it is, is something called the Great Trek. And that is where all the Dutch... The, the the Dutch people, the Boers, um, which will become more inf more famous later on into the early part of the 20th century, when South Africa becomes another major involvement with the British Army, leave the British-dominated colonies and move north. And, and so when they move north, they go up into the areas of the Orange Free, Free State, which is around the area currently of the city of Bloemfontein, and into the Transvaal, and that's the area around Johannesburg. And so they become the five white colonies of, the, uh, uh, of South Africa. However, it's not just, there isn't just a South Africa, um, white colonies in South Africa. You've also got the the native populations as well and so they're very tribal and so the area around which the the british have moved into around natal they come under the closer people um they're generally quite peaceful and they've been pacified quite easily um nelson mandela was uh, was closer um just as a side note but to the the border of the Natal province of 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 Natal, the the Buffalo River. To the west, to the east of that, is the Zulu tribe, and the Zulus were far different to the closer, and that's what we're going to come into and how Britain and and the Zulus clash. Okay, awesome. So, okay. You mentioned the Zulus there. So tell us how they rose to prominence in South Africa over that time. And then also explain a little bit about the uh, Shaka Zulu warrior culture, if you wouldn't mind. Yes. So the Zulus, they they really rise to prominence under their great king, Shaka. Uh, I believe he was born in about 1830s, something like that. Um, but he builds upon, like you say, this warrior culture. So being a warrior in 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 Zulu in Zululand is a must. Um for example, you can't get married if you're not a warrior. Um it is deeply embedded within within their culture. And so this small Shaka because it, it it wasn't born to be their king. He was born just as a clan leader. But this idea of becoming a warrior and this warrior culture comes out of that clan and gradually he takes over and commands the entire Zulu, the entire, entire Zulu people. And then he starts to threaten other, other clans and tribes as well. So you have the great Zulu closer war, which the Zulus dominate. 
and they become the most feared and most active of the southern african tribes and again this is what's going to bring them into sharp conflict with the ex attempts of british expansion in south africa and uh, now we know obviously who's involved in south africa can you explain how the conflict between britain and the zulus will be inevitable yes so like i said it's at the height of british imperial power you've had a few there's a few things that ordinarily on their own do, do not make a conflict inevitable but when you start combining them together they begin to snowball now the one of the first things that is discovered is diamonds up in the northern part of area it's diamond deposit is actually found in a dutch area and the british obviously being imperialist they want control of it and so something starts to develop and it, it, it it's a theory that comes from other imperialistic um imperial possessions so for example canada goes through the same process although be it in a much more peaceful way and that's what's called confederization. So that's where these smaller colonies within the same larger geographical area are, are merged to form one, I wouldn't say nation, but it becomes a bigger entity than it, it originally was. And so what happens is, is that you get this idea forming of bringing all the five white colonial areas under British control. Now, essentially what this is, is a money grab of the diamonds under Dutch possession. But it will then ultimately lead to conflict with the Boers. Uh, well, not with the Boers. Um, it will do in, um, in, in the early 20th century, but with the Zulus at this time. Okay, we're going to bring in a, uh, a character now, or a, a guy now, called Sir Henry uh, Bartle Frere. Um, so tell us a little bit about him and his uh, influence on, on uh, what's going to be going on here uh, during this period. Bartle Frere is one of these heavily influential people in British imperialist policy. He's brought into South Africa from India, so he has that experience of managing these the transition from smaller independent colonies into a confederization of one larger colony so it, it's already happened in india it happens in canada so it, it, it's a policy that the um the british government is enacting around this period of time of confederization it just means it's easier to control rather than having five or six colonies within a large geographical area it's one it's governed by a in a capital by a governor it, it's a lot easier to control so he he's brought in to implement this policy and he's having a lot of kickback from it especially from the two dutch settlements because they don't particularly want to be colonized within the british regime it also has an impact because the border with the Zulus will become larger and that he sees the Zulus as a 
as a significant threat, which to some extent they are because they are a warrior-like people on the border with Britain, of the British territories. However, compare the, the comparable equipment available to those soldiers and to the British soldiers means that realistically they're not that they, they, they shouldn't be considered much of a threat at this point in time. However, like any imperialist person, he sees gaining more land, gaining more power and more territory is in Britain's interest. And so he starts to push towards an invasion of Zululand. Um, there's a new no, number of conferences between the British and the Zulus. Um, King Shaka, by this point, has died. And it's a descendant of his King Kachwao, who is now the leader of the Zulus. And one of the things that he, that Bartofria demands of the Zulus to prevent a war is for them to disband their impis and the impis of the army. Now, for a warrior nation such as the Zulus, this this is a nonsense demand. You know, they can, they will not disband the army. And so this demand that's placed upon the Zulus by the Basel Freya, he knows he's going to be rejected, and that is going to be the catalyst for the war to begin. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, so talk us through the invasion of Zululand and what the objective was for uh, the British army. And, yeah. uh, so, so the invasion of Zululand, which begins in the in January 1879 is led by uh, Lord Chelmsford, the general. And the, the objective is to move swiftly into Zululand and to advance upon their capital of Alundi. Capture Alundi and force the Zulus into surrender. And like thusly, the... Um, the disbandment of the Zulu impies and the what will eventually become the the expansion of the Natal province. Now the zoo the invasion is to be a three pronged invasion. Three columns will invade the Zulu land: one in the north, one in the south, and one in the middle. And it's the central column that Chomsford himself will command. And this is where what we're going to talk about today all happens. So you generally find that uh, for the northern and the southern columns move in uh, and move quite, um, quite easily towards their targets. However, this, uh, this middle column has a much different story to tell. And that's, that column is commanded directly by Lord Chelmsford. Mm -hmm. And again, I know you mentioned, obviously, the, the Zulu warriors, uh, Zulu land, you know, Zulu people are warrior people. And, uh, and, and, and he was worried about them being aggressive. But to me, obviously, this move by Britain is very aggressive, isn't it? The, and, 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 and again, I know you did explain it. So their aim is to basically land grab. They they just want to take the land off the Zulus. Is that basically it? Pretty much, yes, yes. And, uh, and, and what? It, yeah, but what, the, what? What would they have gained from it though? As far you know, I mean, okay, yeah, it's land, but what was their hopes to gain from this? 
So first of all, there is an element of an aggressive neighbour next door. Um, but predominantly, it's land and it's wealth. Um, they're the things that they're the things that they want, and so ultimately, land, a land grab is the primary primary objective of the British invasion of Zululand. Okay, so basically, they would once they had grabbed the land, they would then obviously send settlers to go and settle on this land. Is that correct? Uh, set, settle on it, farm it, exploit yeah. exploit it for any natural resources that they may find within it um very very similar to the american western expansion mm -hmm. um i get the, what you're saying yeah the, the, the yeah. difference between the Brit british colonial policy at this time and the and the western expansion of america was happening around around like the same time, time. Like, yeah that's you right, look yeah. It, it it it's three it's three years on from little big home mm -hmm. Is it seventy six? Little big hole, I think, off the top of my head. Something like that, yeah. So it, it it it's happening at that same time, and so yeah, yeah. Sometimes there is expansion that takes place because, like I say, in, in Kimberley, the, the the gold, the the diamond mines are discovered, and so there's a natural element of thereafter that. Um, at this stage, I don't believe. Um, that there was much natural result known about the natural resources of this area, mm. but as you would imagine, they would expect to find certain things within this area, and mm. so it, it's land grabbing. It is prime ag agricultural territory, yeah, as well, um, and so you can have settlers, you can have farmers, you can have, um, and there might be something there as well. But yeah, it's primarily it's to. It, it it's to grab as much of this land as possible and and again it had a had a you know um so basically you know not only are they grabbing the land but they're also what they're thinking is we're eliminating this threat that's on our doorstep and there won't be a threat anymore basically so it's sort yeah. of like it's got that two-pronged sort of um uh, objective there yeah i see yeah it, it's kind of like to be honest the threat that the Zulus pose is minimal. Yeah. Is absolutely minimal. There is a lot of parallels, shall we say, to the Brit Sabato Freer's assessment of the Zulu threat, mm -hmm. to George W. Bush and Tony Blair's assessment of Saddam Hussein's threat. Okay, yeah. yeah. In the early yeah. in the early two thousands, in that Yes, they they might be a bit rogue, they might be a bit dangerous on the borders, but realistically, in comparison to the military power that you have to crush that threat, mm -hmm. it is very it is very minimal. Yeah. Um and so that is it it that the, the, they build they they make the case for the threat to justify the military invasion, which the threat level isn't at the same level as they believe and obviously we're talking about a period of time where the passing of messages from Cape Town and the town and, and Durban to Britain and back to pass these messages back to the colonial office in London mm -hmm. about 
takes months. Mm-hmm. And so these people, like Sabato or Freya, the governors of these regions, pretty much have a free hand to act as themselves, as yeah. policymakers of the British government. I was going to bring that up about Parliament, you know, because obviously they would have had to, you know, sort of, in a way, okayed it. But like you said, communication's not great at this point in time. And again, it's a long way away, isn't it, to get back to Britain, like you yes. said, so, so how aware were they? Of them? I mean, obviously, they, again, like you said, this is the British Empire period. So any land grab is great for, for the British government. But... You know, how aware were they of this in, in Westminster that, you know, this was going to be happening, this is going on, you know? So Parliament's basically at this time <clears throat> allowed rule by decree to the governors. Mm-hmm. You know, it was too far away for them to intervene. By the time that they get the messages that arrive in London about, the build-up and the threat of the Zulus, the invasion has already happened. Yeah. And so often it's retrospective action that's brought against these, I wouldn't say rogue governors, but these governors that, that act on impunity. So people like Sabato Freya will get recalled and will have to sit in Parliament and be questioned upon their actions. Explain himself, yeah. Yes. Um, In a similar way to like the Tory government that was in power during COVID, the ministers there are now being asked in front of a committee asking to explain their decision-making, etc. It will be a similar nature there in terms of they are given devolved power, shall we say, Mm -hmm. to be, okay, you, you go off, you run this, but the day-to-day running of it is down to you because you can't just send an email to the Prime Minister saying, "Do you have, have I got my permission to invade Zululand? And yeah. then 20 minutes later, you've got a reply, yes or no. Even quicker than that, in some, in my, probably in most cases. But you're talking months. And mm. in the meantime, the threat levels have changed, things like that. So what the, these people these governors are given immense is an immense amount of power yeah so they're quite powerful people aren't they you know they, they, yeah. they are they are very powerful they are proxy dictators if you will mm, mm. because they are able to act under their own impunity yes they've got a little bit of oversight but on the day-to-day running day-to-day decisions it's on them well again like like we've mentioned obviously the the uh, aggression has come from Britain, but so let's how how do the Zulus react to this invasion? You know, so obviously the Zulus they've got a big army, but it's not massive, shall we say? And because of their equipment and their weaponry, they need they have to be canny with their decision making. Mm-hmm. They it, it's not like. They can't go and say, okay, right, let's look at the, t- look at the terrain, let's block a pass, stick some artillery in there, and when, when they come up, we'll just blast it. We'll, we'll make them force their way through the pass under heavy defence. That's not how the Zulu army operates. The Zulu army is armed, and if you look behind me, I've got some Zulu artefacts. Yeah, so I've got a right here, so you can explain their art, you know, how they're armed and how they 
go about their yeah. tactics and stuff if you want to. So, obviously, they've got the large shield, and then they'll be armed with one of two weapons. So, the gentleman in the picture there is armed with what, in, in the English language, we call an asagai, but in the Zulu language, it's called the ikwa. And it got that name because that is the sound, it, the, the sound of the pop that it made as it was withdrawn from the body. Lovely. So it's a, it's a short-range stabbing spear. Uh, the other weapon that they may, that they're often armed with is something called a nubkari, which is a large um, stick with like a ball on the end of it. And that will be used for smashing in heads. And that's it. That is their sole armament. However, their greatest advantage of being armed in this manner is mobility. Mm -hmm. They're able to run, and they, the Zulus were extremely fit. They could run, they were trying to run 20 miles. And having run 20 miles, they then fought a battle. So wow. it's not like you imagine running a, something just short of the London Marathon mm. and then going into combat. Wow, you know, that is super fit, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So that that is their prime advantage, and that is going to be significant when it comes to one of the battles that we discuss. Yeah. So obviously we've discussed the Zulus, what they're armed with, and so let's have a look at what they're up against because they're up against an empire. They're up against different weaponry. So explain away uh, the British uh, soldier of the time, of the 1870s. Uh, so they are up against the most formidably equipped army that Britain has ever put into the field in terms of the weaponry. They are armed with the breech-loading Martini Henry rifle. So not only does it load from the breech, it's a single round, shall we say the best way to describe it. I won't describe it just yet as a bullet, but it's a single it's a single round. So unlike the weapons that it replaced in terms of the Enfield rifle musket and going back further, the flintlock musket, it's a one slot in it goes job. Bolt um drop action, so very sim a similar action on it to a Winchester maybe, where you pull you pull the trigger guard down and it drops the breech out and then the and then the round just slots back in, you pull it up and you fire it. Like any British weapon, it's also got the, the long bayonet around about eighteen inches. Again, we're in a period that cavalry still reigns supreme on the battlefield, especially within a European theatre if there was to be a war in Europe. Obviously, we've recently had, only nine years before 1870, had the Franco-Prussian War, which was the only major, real major war between two um, level European powers between the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 and the start of the First World War in 1814. So in Europe, it's relatively peaceful, but the, Brit the, armies, the British army is still being equipped to fight a similar equipped army this isn't just an army that solely the sole purpose is to defend an empire which i'm heavily reason for use at this period of time but that's mainly just because of 
at that period of time within the latter part of the 18th century that most of Europe is at peace. And so the British army isn't being used in that context in the same way as it was in the early part of part of the century. The last time Britain had fought in a major European uh, in a European conflict was in 1858 um, in the Crimea. So, and they, they had uh, back then they had the Enfield rifle, so rifle muskets. So this is the um, this is one of the most modernly equipped weapons during at that period of time. You start to see a lot more um, ergonomic equipment coming in as well. So the, the equipment belts with the um, the cross belt, everything being hung off the waist belt rather than rather than the shoulder cross belts, and then this um, this, this particular soldier is from the twenty fourth regiment of foot, which is going to be which is the regiment that plays the major part in both of these two battles we're going to talk about, and then they've got the colonial service pith helmet on um, with protection from the sun, uh, a lot of modern equipment. So this, in theory, should have been a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. But as we know, in real life, that doesn't always happen, and we'll find out in a minute. But can I just ask, obviously, we know, um, you know, you get the same from the Shark TV programme, that every good soldier can fire free a minute, but that is obviously, as you know, um, loading from uh, the muzzle um, yes. with your muskets, uh, as you know yourself, uh, being a reenactor, um, we go through all these uh, drills. How many are you expected to fire a minute from a Martini Henry? I would say probably between nine and twelve. Yeah, okay. Um, so they're drilled and drilled and drilled, and 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 a good British soldier could probably do that. They 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 could do. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So at the Battle of Mons in nineteen fourteen, the British regular army, the BEF, were firing nineteen rounds a minute on their bolt actions. So I'd say between 9 and 12 would be around about a good average. And again, is that a similar weapon? No, that's the Lee Enfield bolt yeah, action. Right, so okay, it, it, yeah. it's just working out where, where exactly it would be. But I would say between somewhere between, an average for a soldier would be between 9 and 12. A very, very good fast soldier will be pushing the 12. Probably a more average lower skilled soldier will probably be around about the nine okay mark in the same way it is when we're in the ranks that you get some some are capable of knocking out three rounds a minute with ramming and others are doing two without yeah just because of that that that's the speed the speed of the individual will cut however when these weapons are fired repeatedly and this is something that will come up in the battle it has a it, it does have a issue mm-hmm. um but i'll come on to that when we get on to the yeah the battles itself and and, and we are going to move we are going to move to the slopes of isenwana and hopefully yes. i'm uh, pronouncing that right i apologize if i mispronounce it at the beginning of the podcast ladies and gentlemen um but yeah so firstly explain the location quickly for us before we get into the battle and then get into the battle. And again, this is a famous painting, isn't it, of that battle? Yeah. It, it, I think it, it's in the Army Museum, this one. Is that correct? It is in the Army Museum. And I believe this is the one that's painted by Lady Buller. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, who also paints the Scotland Forever, the Charge of the Scots Greys at Waterloo. But, yeah, so just give us an idea of the location and how these two armies are going to end up clashing at this point. As I've already said, the Lord Chelmsford and the 24th Regiment of Foot and a large select, a large contingent of what is known as Natal Native Contingent, which is um, African soldiers, have moved across the Buffalo River, which is the border between the, the then border between Zululand and the, the Natal province at a place called Rook's Drift. Now, we'll come on to Rook's Drift later on, um, but it's, it, it's basically, a, 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 for what Rook's Drift, for what we need to know now, is a fold. And then they move up into, onto the plateau around the, the rock known as Isendawana, or, or, which translates into Zulu as Little Hand. Now, a lot of the, and it's a few miles away. It, 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 it's not that far. Um, I have been to both of these locations, but I can't remember off the top of my head whether you could see it from Rourke's Drift or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you're looking about a day's march away. So at most 20 miles, but I don't think it's as far, even as far as that. Um, I would like I say, I can't, I can't remember that distance is involved. Um, but it's a lot... It's a low sort of plateau in a, in a sort of hilly area with rocky outcrops, as you could see. Um, in fact, a lot of the, 20, the tw- members of the 24th Regiment of Foot uh, or, and I've actually sort of mentioned how similar it looked to the Sphinx badges on their uniforms, with Egypt being that first um, battle honour that was bestowed to the British Army. Um, for their actions against Napoleon in Egypt, a- any regiment that was there got was given the Sphinx as an identification as part of that. So that's why you see the Sphinx on quite a few coats of arms of British armies. And so that that that's the position that they're in. The position of the Zulus is that they're moving towards Chelmsford's column. And you, they get both armies are in that vicinity in the morning of the 22nd of January, 1879. Mm-hmm. So do they know that they're in that vicinity? So what's the intelligence for both armies at this point? So the intelligence for the Zulus is very, very good. Yeah. Like, we, like I said before, their, their manoeuvrability is, is very good. But also, this is their homelands, yeah, as well. So, when you're the occupying force within a, a, a foreign country, every inhabitant is a possible spy, and so the intelligence coming back to the Zulu command is very, very, is very, very good, and it's very, very quick because of the the speed that the Zulus can run. Mm-hmm. For the British. There's a complacency, shall we say. And so their intelligence is not very good. And so what occurs is that a section of Zulus are spotted by the 
by the British art, by the British force. And Lord Chelmsford takes away some of the cavalry under under Durnford to go and to go and chase them. Uh, but it, they're reconnaissance as well, but they're chasing. But what the Zulus are doing is they're drawing away the mounted element of the force away from the British camp at Isandawana. So it's a camp then, basically. That's it's what it a, is. It, 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 it's the camp, yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. But what the big British mistake, again, it comes down to this complacency level that they just believe that they that, that, that the Zulu, they're going to destroy the Zulus. Mm -hmm. They haven't made any fortifications, so they've not, they've not dug any trench works. They haven't lagered the wagons, which is a, ter which is a Dutch term, to, to circle the wagons and to, to make a fortress. At the Battle of Blood River, when a Zulu force attacked a Dutch force, the Zulu force was annihilated with the loss of no Dutch casualties because that was the tactic that they used. They circled their wagons, prevented the, the, the Zulus from getting in and then firing from within inside the wagons. The, the Dutch kept them at bay and they didn't lose a single casualty. Now, at the, um, at the British camp, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Pauline, who is now left in charge with um, with Lord Chompsford's departure, orders none of this to occur, and that is going to have a serious impact on the British Army or okay. the, the British force. Yeah. So again, they know they're out there, but they don't know they're going to attack them. So is it because the Zulus act? This is like a a, a sucker punch, isn't it? This is quick. This is. Yes. So, so talk us through what happens then, Mark, please. And how so, this disaster is going to unfold for the British, as we know. They they oh. have made the Zulus have made a tactical masterstroke in that this diversion force has drawn away the mounted element. And now they're going to attack. Now the Zulus attack in a formation that was known as the Horns of the Buffalo. So you had four divisions. I, I, I'll call it divisions because it, it, it's, it, it, it's the European term. It's probably the easiest one to describe it as. So you had three at the front with one at the back in the centre. Now what happens is as it moves forward, the one at the, in the middle front will engage the centre the, the main army and then the two wing the two divisions on the wings will stretch out and as they stretch out it, they come round and they encircle and then that fourth division that was in behind will push forward into the center and that was known as the horns of the buffalo attack method and that's what is going to be used on the attack on the british force and so when the Zulus show their hand and advance, the British army is completely caught by surprise. They do not, they, they had no idea that they were there and that they were coming. And so from that moment on, they're on the back foot. Now at first, they're able to hold, hold, the, hold their ground. The, um, the commanding officers react 
fairly well to the, the situation that's unfolding. And they send out skirmish lines and they put down a heavy rate of fire and it holds the Zulus off and it checks them for, for a while. However, things are going to become a problematic for the British fairly, fairly quickly. Now, I did. Now I said about that the Martini Hemi rifle had a flaw when putting down a lot of rounds of fire at once. And that is that the way that the rounds need to be ejected, when you're firing a lot of rounds all at once, a lot of rounds, the round begins to expand. And as a result, it keeps catching in the, in the bridge. And so it, you, the, the soldier would often have to use their bayonet to prise the round out. And so that starts to diminish the rate of fire. Alongside that, there becomes an issue with supply. So because the, um, because the soldiers were caught on their heels, they've only got the amount of rounds that they were issued on a general day. They haven't been issued additional rounds for battle that would normally be. And so the, the ammunition is stored up in the baggage train. And so you're having to send men from, and these, these would often be drummer boys anyway, so it wouldn't nece necessarily detract from the firepower. But they would be having to run back to the baggage train to collect more ammunition. And this is where you get a real problem unfold for the British in that the commissary up there at the baggage train is a bit of a stickler for duty. <laughs> and so he, he will only issue rounds or ammunition to the right companies. He will only issue it if it has been signed by the commanding officer. And so he's not paying real much attention to the events unfolding and he's more concerned about his ledgers being correct than actually what is occurring. And this will have a, de a disastrous effect because what the firepower that is at this moment in time holding the Zulus at bay begins to diminish and as it diminishes it means the Zulus can get closer and actually start getting into the British soldiers and the battle itself at this stage takes a major turn the horns of the buffalo technique is work the British are fully enclosed and their firepower is running down which means it is now hand-to-hand -hand combat between bayonet and Nicholas and Dobkiris. And this is a technique, these are techniques that the Zulus are trained for. Mm -hmm. it's, that, it's now a level, level playing field. The, the firepower element has completely disappeared. It, it, we'll say completely disappeared, but it's been heavily negated by this absolute foul up in supply. Yeah. And so now these soldiers the Zulus are able to get in between 
and so there's little groups of men fighting together against against the Zulu hordes. The skirmish line has been pushed back, and the Zulus start to push the British army back into into the camp and really start to encircle it. Mm-hmm. And can I just bring up? So I, I know you mentioned how fit these Zulu warriors are, and again, yeah. the word is in there, warrior. You know, yes, hand to hand combat is their trade. That's what they do. Yes. Uh, like you said, with the stabbing weapon and the shield, and you know, it's very similar to you know wars of the past, way way back in history. How fit were the British soldiers, and 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 what was their level of training when it came to this sort of combat? Because obviously, we know they're well drilled and trained to fire a weapon, but when it comes to hand hand combat, what sort of training did they receive then? You know, did they receive that sort of training? So fitness levels, they were fit. They just weren't as fit as the Zulus. Mm-hmm. Um, they would do route marches and things like that to build up fitness, but they are fit for the type of fighting that they are expected to be fit for. They, so they had a good level of fitness. They just had a good level of fitness for what they were expected to, to do. And that would be route marches, formation fighting, not the sort of not the fighting that the Zulu not in the same fitness level that the Zulu would do who is fit for their style of fighting in terms of training the British army again would have significant amounts of bayonet training however again this is training that's built up to fight against a European force that would be fighting almost the same as you. Mm-hmm. And so the type of training that they would have been given would have been defend against cavalry, defend against infantry, where that infantry is coming on in a dead straight line, line to line kind of fighting. What the Zulus are doing, the British army really hasn't faced probably a deadlier force that fights, I wouldn't say haphazardly because that gives a a, a disservice, but in comparison to European army forces, um, just trying to think of a good word because everyone that everyone i can think of sort of sounds a bit um does them a disservice um but because it's because they fight unbroken or, or, or in sort of a broken formation shall we say it becomes a lot harder for the british army to use its drills so you would have seen you see this in the early stages of the jacobite rebellions when they're faced with the highland charges they would they 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 were delivered in the very much the same way where it's not a formation going in it's just a body on mass mm-hmm. and so it takes a lot of development in terms of the drill to really get to grips with fighting an enemy that fights in this way and so the formations that the drills that the british army would have had in place at the day 
do kind of struggle against this kind of formation. And once it once the lines start to break and you get men, it's almost a man on man situation at that point. And so it does become a lot harder. And also you have to remember as well that you know from our own reenacting where when you've got a long a long armed musket or rifle with an 18 inch bayonet on it's quite unwieldy mm. it, it's not the easiest weapon to handle and so if you are a zulu coming in against that and you've got this large shield and you've got this stabbing spear and a red coat lunges at you with a bayonet if you can get that shield in front of you to protect you and then to knock the bayonet away that man's unarmed once you're inside that bayonet mm -hmm. And then it's easy, yeah. And it's the same way that when you when the British developed the bayonet drill that they used against the Highlanders at Culloden, the Highlanders had the small shield. And so what they were told, what the British were told to do, was to stab the man to the right, not the man ahead, and how and rely on your the man your next man to do the same because it negated the shield and it meant that you were going into the bare flesh. Now that's not, that was a drill that was built for a one-off battle. Mm -hmm. And then the next time the British army went into combat after Culloden was in the seven years war in with Wolf in Quebec and he completely changed the drill again. Then you get the Napoleonic Wars with Wellington. And so, that drill was gone from the drill manual by the point that the British are then uh, in South Africa. And so the drills that they're, they're developed struggle against this army. And then as a result, you get this, this thing of once you're inside that bayonet point, if a Zulu beats your bayonet point, you're dead. Mm -hmm. it, 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 in that manner. And so, as we know, th this is the case here. And so, what 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 are we talking about casualty wise? Because it's a complete route, isn't it? Casualty wise, the that British force is nigh on wiped out. You're looking mm -hmm. about nine hundred redcoats dead. Mm -hmm. So, co uh, co complete wipeout. You get a few manage to escape, um, run off down towards the rivers. Um, Two specifically in a moment that we'll come on to. Yeah. Um, and then you've got what's left of Durnford's force that has moved away with um, Chompsford that will come back and see what's happened. Okay. But and in terms of the actual, the force that was left at Isandawana, mm -hmm. it's nearly all, it, it's all gone. And and my right in saying there's something unusual that happens during the battle, so just quickly tell us about that. Yeah, so halfway through the battle, you get a solar eclipse. Wow. <laughs> um, so all all, all 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 goes black, and it, it's kind of like an omen in a way. Yeah, of a pretense of what's happened. Okay, okay. You mentioned um, there about um, a couple of soldiers that get away, um, but um, so this is an important part of the story of this battle, isn't it? And uh, there's two guys that um, that will save the colours. So tell us about those. Yeah. So obviously. The British Army, the prized possession for any regiment is the is the colours. And so 
often the case of whenever a unit is properly under pressure, the order is given to save the colours and to get them out of there. And so that is where you then get this um, this last brave aspect of the battle. And that is where these two soldiers um, attempt to save the colours. So Lieutenant Cogwells and Melville um, are, are tasked to save the colours. And so they're, they're, both, they're, they're both mounted and they ride off in the direction of towards Rourke's Drift and, and, and away for safety. Um, they are chased by, by the Zulus and eventually caught and both are killed. Oh, wow. As is often the case with the, with the colours when it comes to Imperial battles, that when they are found, the colours are still with them. Because often native regiments um whether that be in africa in afghanistan which is a, a another a, another disastrous um imperialist campaigns for the british army the colors were attempted to be saved and often they are those native cultures don't see don't understand the importance of colors to the british army and so where, again, again, if you're thinking of fighting a European force, oh, we've captured the colours, they'll, they'll ride around parading them, like, we've got them, we've got them. Here, they're just left, because actually, the Zulus aren't interested in the colours no. at all. And so they are, they are recovered by another force when the bodies of um, Cogwell and Melville were found. Let's move on to Rourke's Drift then. And as you said, it is a Ford, but it also is a um, aid station. Is that correct? Or a supply depot? Um, so just to explain a little bit about its location and what it what its purpose was. Yes. Yeah, so, so so there's two Rourke's Drifts, if you if you get up, if you will. There's Rourke's Drift itself, which is the Ford, and then there's the mission station, the old mission station of Rourke's Drift, known to the Zulus as Jim's Place a mile or so down the track from the fold. Um, and so when the invasion begins, this is, see, this is used as a, by the British force for a number of reasons. Um, so firstly, it's a supply depot. It's also um, allocated to be the hospital. And also there is a, Detachment of Royal Engineers who have been sent to Rourke's Drift, the Ford, to build a bridge to enable even greater access into Zululand. So there's a lot going on around the Rourke's Drift area, but primarily speaking, it's a supply depot for that central column um, in the invasion of Zululand. However, as we already know, that central column has now been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And who is in command and uh, uh, defending this station? So uh, we'll get on to the two commanders here. So we do have uh, Lieutenant John Chard and we have um, Bromhead. Sorry. Bromhead, yes. Yeah. So Lieutenant Bromhead has been left in command by his regiment, the 24th Regiment of the Foot, um, which be go goes on to become the South Wales Borders Regiment. So he's left there as commander of the supply depot itself. Um, 
it, itself and the hospital and the men of the, of the detachment of the 24th Regiment of Fort that is left behind as as guard and the men who were currently sick in the hospital. And then you've got Lieutenant Chard, who is the Royal Engineers officer at that has been detached with, with the small engineering force to build the bridge. Mm-hmm. And okay. so at this, at this stage, prior to knowledge of what's happened at Isandawana and the realisation that they may become a target, Chard is basically in command of one force, Brumhead in charge of another force, and they're working independently of each other okay. at the early at the, at the early at, at this point before and and so you know what do they know that something's gone on further down the road at Isenwala? Um, they, do they know what's coming towards them at what yes. point do they realize hang on a minute we've got a problem here um and so you know, when they realise, so explain that, and then also explain the, the preparations that they will make to to try and defend themselves. They do obviously get word of it. Like I say, I can't remember the exact distances involved um, between them. So they may have even heard the gunfire going on and then sort of... The, um, but they, they certainly... A rider from the column does come back and let them know. So they are, they are aware shall we say, of a of an incident happening to the main column and so they do start to prepare their the defence of the um of the mission station. So they Bromhead stops all work on the bridge and he comes back to the mission station and He's the best person to have at the station at that time because he is an engineer. And so he looks around at the defense, at, at what they have and decides how best to defend it. So they use mealy bags, which is corn, biscuit boxes to build walls. There are elements of walls between different sections of the different buildings, but in general, it it's a lot of it comes down to um, Bromhead as the engineer, really, really pushing it on. You've also got um, Colour Sergeant Bourne as well. He, he's heavily involved and the Commissari as well. Um, but they, they, they throw out a defensive line. They create a defence in depth. So as you can see on that picture, you've got the outer, the outer perimeter that links the storehouse to the hospital and then the hospital all the way around on the mealy bag wall to the corral. But then within that, you've then got the brisket wall box, creates a, a smaller compound and then the redoubt inside that. So it's a real defence in depth that if one falls, you can fall back to another defensive position and then another one. So this is, this is how a defensive position against the Zulus needs to look. This is what um, Lieutenant put. Lieutenant Colonel Pauline up at Isandawana should have been trying to create at the camp rather than just being left completely wide open. So a lot of this would have already been obviously in place because, like you said, they've been here a little while, haven't they? So um, yeah, so they have to. They probably didn't have to do that much to to try and beef it up a little bit, did they? 
I don't know exactly how much was already there. Mm. Um, <clears throat> obviously, this this um, this position. It was a permanent position in terms of it was a mission station. There was significant buildings, so the the hospital, the storehouse, for example, was already there. The corral area, so bits of it would have been bits of it would have been there. So like the corral where that where they kept the cattle, that would have already been in situ. Um, but other sections of it would have needed to be beefed up fairly quickly. How quickly after Isamwala are the Zulus attacking Rorkstrift? Very, very quickly. Uh, like you say, not long, not not long at all. It, it all happens in the same day. I don't know exactly what the hours were between the end of one battle beginning the of the other. What occurs? What basically occurs is is that Isandawana happens so quickly that the veteran reserve at um, at Isandawana doesn't actually see any action, and that's a that 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 that's a bit of a problem because this is the the veteran reserve. These are these are the old the, the old guard. They want to be. They want to fight. Um, it. The, the warrior culture demands that they fight. And so they see then Rook's Drift as an easy target. And it's yeah. okay, right, let, 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 let's go. We, we've beaten this. If we go and wipe that out, we've done our bit as well. Yeah, cool. And so yeah. that and, and so that's why they move that's why they move so, against Rook's Drift. So it's not right. the entire army mm-hmm. that had fought at is under one and then okay. goes, right now we're gonna go on to there and as often is try is portrayed, take Rook's drift and then invade Natal. Mm-hmm. It's a small segment of unused men from the main Zulu army that fought at Isandawana mm-hmm. moves independently against Rook's drift. Okay, so again, as we know, they move against Rook's drift. So talk us through the action. What's going to happen at Rourke's Drift for um, the British Army and the Zulu warriors? So the Zulus will will attack um, again in their new in their trusted horns of the buffalo formation. The difference is in the, at Rourke's Drift is that the men are evenly spaced around the defence. And so they don't go towards the Zulus. And so the Zulus need to then be able to breach the walls of Brooks Drift. And so the steady fire of of the men from the walls, not just from the walls, but loopholes have been made in the hospital in the storehouse. So, so there's men all around the defensive perimeter. But also you've got a commissary there as well who is able to supply the men quickly with the ammunition. And so that issue about ammunition being withheld um, that you get is Andawana does fail. Now, there is one caveat to the differences between the armies and that some of the Zulus are now armed with rifles. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So do they know how to use the rifles as well when they actually acquire them? They, well, they obviously do, but 
You know, is that because they've watched the British using them or did they already know how to use a rifle? Certainly the rifles have come from the battlefield at Zendawana. Yeah. So they didn't have a lot of time to, to get no, you know, used like, to using this weapon, you know. However, it's probably the case as most things are you quickly work out how to use it or somebody knows how to use one. Yeah. You know, there's pro- they've probably captured some people mm-hmm. and maybe show- got the one of them to show them. Um, but yeah, there, there's certainly, there's a, no- there's a knowledge of how to use a rifle, even if they've not handled one yeah. extensively before and never actually had. That there is a there is a knowledge of it. It may be just simple as the ones that know how to use it took them, and the ones that didn't didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like considering the amount of spent rifles at Isandawana, not all of them are in use. No, at Rock's Drift. So there is an element of there are some, and often they're attributed to being up in the hills that overlook yeah. or in the film they're in the hills that the land's a bit flatter but they'll be in sniping positions to try and shoot so they're not actually going up they're not trying to fight bayonet to bayonet with with, with the british soldiers that they're they're, they're, fur, they're further back firing mm-hmm. and so it's, it's quite an intense battle as well isn't it like you said so it starts in the evening of the 22nd and, and it goes on into the 23rd um Yes. But, um, you know, what? what's the outcome of this battle in the end? Um, well, we know that. Um, but there might be some people that don't, you know. Yeah, so there's there's, there's a number of attacks that, that go in against the, um, against the British force. Uh, the hospital catches fire, um, which um, requires an evacuation. Um but on the whole, the Zulus they do breach the outer perimeter, and their foot. And so the Brit, the, the the British force, the twenty fourth regiment of foot, the, the small company that's there, are forced to fight a, a final last action in in the smaller perimeter area. But the Zulus will eventually break off the attack because the mountain casualty rate that they're, they're receiving. It's a similar situation to the Blood River battle. Um, the British lose 17 soldiers. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how many the, the Zulus lose, but it, 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 it's a significant number. And so they re- eventually the attack's broken off because they realise that the British defensive position is just too strong that they can't break it. That mm-hmm you would need significant munitions to break it, cannon, things like that, to, to really do it. The equipment that the, um, that the Zulus have just isn't enough to, to break a defended position. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that comes out of Rawls Drift is, is um, and, and down in history, is due to the number of Victoria Crosses that are handed out. And uh, so if you could please explain... Like a little bit more about that and uh, I think these are all the recipients uh, I can't remember how many there actually are uh, I think it's 11 yeah um, it's 11 some of the guys that, that received the VC and uh, yeah so just uh, just explain that a little bit for us 
The Victoria Cross is the highest order of um, bravery issued to a serving member of the British Armed Forces. Comes into effect from uh, during the Crimean War. In fact, all the medals are are struck from bronze that has been cut from a cannon that was captured at the siege of Sebastopol. Um, so even today, the, when when they on the odd occasion that they are issued, it, it's still from that that one gun. It's so eleven of them are are handed out for various. Um, acts of courage and bravery however there has to be a slight note in that in that because the news of the two battles reached britain all at once there's probably an element of over celebrating rook's drift mm-hmm. to cover up is Andoana. yeah i'll get you yeah so mm-hmm. not saying that these men that were awarded them weren't brave and didn't or didn't deserve them they they is possibly an element of that in that it's okay well we'll do that to cover that yeah um so do you think there was an element of embarrassment you know from Isenwala that you know yeah definitely um it like i said the timelines really work out well to come to make the comparison but there is certainly that element of a professional force of in of an industrialized army yeah being wiped out by a native force that uses in comparison very primitive mm-hmm. weapons yeah yeah in the same way with custer's seventh cavalry mm-hmm. being annihilated at little bighorn has a major negative and in make is an embarrassment for that the army British and empire. yeah the british yeah. empire i mean look but, at this empire most powerful and, empire ever you know and what you need to do very very quickly is put that to bed with something else and 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 this this plays and, into that and, and, Rook, yeah. and rook's drift plays right into that because suddenly mm-hmm. the attempted invasion of zulu of natal by the zulus have been repulsed by 124 men yeah you know it it has Animo links mm-hmm. in that sense of the, the this brave few men that repulsed this entire invasion, which it was never an invasion, it was just a secondary assault against a logistics position. Yeah. That's all it was. However, there's something that now the government can wire that support yeah. um and really get behind and sort of go, look, all these brave men, like we're going to give them, they've all been given Victoria crosses. They've all, well, not all of them, but there's 11 Victoria crosses handed out. It, it, it's made like this massive, big element in terms of British military history. Yeah. Like one of the biggest battles or most famous battles in British military history. And yet it's a little footnote in comparison to yeah. our history like yeah. how, how has it got such a i want to say cult following to some extent obviously the film probably has a cult yeah following. which we'll get to in a sec yeah but how has it ballooned into this if you get what i mean yeah from 124 men defeating yes significantly larger numbers of men in a raid against a 
a supplier depot and yet it's rec it's remembered in the in the same breadth as Agincourt of Waterloo and of the Battle of Britain yeah so somewhere along the line and and, and the 11 Victoria crosses is part of building that Rorkesdrift myth yeah and part of that especially in the early, in the early very early wouldn't say days after it days and weeks as news starts to filter back to britain or through the through the south african colonies and then back to britain is that it changes from a raid on a supply depot to a repulsing of a, a zulu invasion and using the 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 Volks drift event to hide the shame of the Zanduana event. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, I again, believe, is you know, how you're, not, you're not taking anything away from these brave men, because, I mean, this was, you know, heroic, wasn't it, at the end of the day? But, you know, I yeah. get what you're saying, yeah. I yeah, like, that. Yeah. these men were fighting for their lives, and they, yeah. pulled, they pulled off a miracle in that sense. Yeah. But yeah. in terms of how how it's remembered especially in that time period i get completely get what you're saying and I, i'm actually you know looking at it slightly differently than i was before i think you know because yeah. um, i've never really thought about it like that in that way before yeah so you've really got my uh my brain going there but yeah, yeah I, so like i say it, it's, it's the, to take nothing away from the bravery point. of what these men did yeah that day slash night it's just reevaluating the aftermath yeah of it of the event and how that has changed the um the perception mm -hmm. of how of how we view this event and actually what this event originally was yeah of course excellent that's really good um so what next for the zulus though i mean after all this you know what happens to zulu the zulus uh, you know going forward so unfortunately for the zulus their their victory at Isandawana is also their death knell at the same time. Yeah. Because now the full weight of the British Empire is going to fall on them. Mm -hmm. What was originally a clash on the borders and was being dealt with by the troops that were there mm -hmm. is now going to snowball and balloon up in their faces quite big, quite quickly. And so the war takes a dramatic turn for the Zulus and they very, very quickly lose, shall we say. Um, it, it, the worst thing that they could have done was inflict the casualties that they did at Zandawana yeah. because they've now, the whole weight of the art, the whole weight of, Britain's military pressure can be is, is, is applied upon them. They yeah. do get one more I'll say one more. There, there's one more significant casualty the Zulus do inflict, which is um Napo the Imperial Prince of France, so one of Napoleon's grandchildren, I think it is. Um he's killed in whilst um fighting for the British. Mm -hmm. um, in Zululand and that wipes out the Bonaparte line um, and the descendants of Napoleon at that point um, but yet very very quickly 
um, there's two or two or three big battles, and then um, Alundi falls, and the um, the um, the Zulus are, are, are subjected mm-hmm. um, by that uh, by that stage. Casuel is taken prisoner and is brought to brought, brought, brought to Britain, um, where once he's pervaded, but he's he's seen as a sort of the next time you see him when he's in Britain, he's in a suit and things like that. So he's sort of that, that kind of in very imperialistic westernization of a native leader yeah. becomes apparent. So yeah. And um, very unfortunate for the Zulus by winning their great victory. Also means that it is that, is that um, old saying of you've won the battle, but you're going to, you've lost the war. Yeah. And, that that was precise. That was precisely it. If they'd have had a a minor defeat by the British army, by the British forces earlier in in the war, come to terms, there might have been a more um, a more enviable um, peace, shall we say? Mm-hmm. But because of that victory, they then had to be destroyed. Yeah, like, like it, you 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 couldn't leave them. They go, oh, no, like that's it. They, 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 they need to be defeated significantly now. Yeah, and so, but there are still um, Zulu communities in South Africa now. Is that right? Yeah. So um, the Zulu tribes and the Zulu, the Zulus themselves, they they do continue. So they're not. Um, they're, there's no extermination of Zulus, shall we say? Um, they're just subjected to British rule. Um, a number of South African presidents have been Zulu. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's Jacob Zuma. Jacob Zuma, I think it is. He 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 was Zulu. Um, and so yeah, so, so, so Zulus are that 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 they are still they the Zulu communities does still exist, and, and they're very proud of their heritage. Yeah, of course they are. Yeah, um, that they, they they do a a, a regular reenactment of um of his Andawana. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit they wear Crocs, which is looks quite funny at times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Health, health, and safety, you know. Yeah, um, course, yeah. But yeah, like so. Yeah, that 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 is a very proud heritage that they that they do hold. And considering the term, the atrocities that they go through. Yeah. From Rock's Drift up until sort of even that as late as 1999. So you you have Vaux Drift, then you have the British colonisation or confederalisation, the expansion of South Africa. Then in 1945, you get the rise of the the Boer National Party and apartheid all the way through until the mid 90s. And then even after, mm-hmm. when you go to the power sharing, you have almost a civil war between the various different. South African tribal groups like the Zulus, the Closer, um, are all vying for power within the new democratized Safa. So they have that they they have had a very traumatic history post Isandawana, mm-hmm. and so maybe that that's probably why there's that link back to when they were a, a, a great power. Yeah, he's so fondly remembered by them. By, mm. by the Zulus. Excellent. Well, let's move on to um, something that a lot of people will resonate with, and that is the immortalisation of 
you know, Rourke's Drift with the the, the film Zulu, um, yeah. which I, I would imagine most military buffs would have seen. Now, I know there are a couple of movies, aren't there? I think there is a movie about Ismailo as well, isn't there? Yeah, Zulu Dawn. Yeah, Zulu uh, Yeah, I've never actually watched that. Uh, no, sorry about that. It, it, um, I've only watched it a few times. It's not, yeah. it, 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 it's not the same no. um, as Zulu. Uh, it does have... Um, Phil Daniels is in it as a mm-hmm. young soldier, and yeah. I don't know the actor's name, but he pa- he plays um, Avi Grant in Povich. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in it, and he's he's the commissar who yeah. refuses to give the supplies over. Um, but yeah, it, obviously, Zulu, the Michael Caine Zulu is sort of the the, yeah. the most famous and, of. And and I, am I right in saying there's a Shaka Zulu? film as well something i believe that was sort of a yeah. mini tv series yeah something like that i um, remember but, Fred talking about that once yeah yeah but He's again lost, but yeah. that that's shaka's rise to power and yeah okay. and the zulu's rise to prominence so it, it's a little bit it, it's quite a long way before what we what, what we've been talking yeah, about yeah but um from what i understand this is eight uh 18 sorry uh, 1964 i believe this comes out Nin- 1960s yes yeah, so, I mean, when I watch it, it I mean, it's timeless. I mean, you, you're, um, it's hard to believe that it was a 1960s film when I watch it even now. I, it's, it's so tiny. It's such a great movie, isn't it? I mean, it's fantastic. It is. Like, like, like you say, there's a few discrepancies within it. Yeah. But yeah. I think that they're put in to make the film to give the film a bit of life mm-hmm. in that period up until the attack begins. Yeah. And to put... So, but but so, that's Hollywood, though, isn't it? Hollywood does that with most... most yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we, you, you, like, get that. like any film, a film is made for entertainment. Yeah, of course And yeah. you have to take away the element of... <clears throat> you have to take the odd inaccuracies within a Hollywood film and look over them. That, as historians, I think we, we, we get ourselves hooked on the inaccuracies a little bit too much rather yeah. than yeah. watching a film from an entertainment point of view. I agree, yeah. And uh, yeah. so um, one, of, one of the uh, the biggest inaccuracies is Private Hook, isn't it? Um, yes. his movie so he's he's betrayed completely different to what the actual person was so just to explain a little bit about the difference there so, yeah so in the film Hooks in the hospital mm-hmm. and is often the, the colour sergeant and the sergeant who's in the hospital call him a malingar and that he's got nothing wrong with him uh, but at the end of the battle the sergeant who's in the hospital in delirium, he he's in he it's him and Hook alone in the room when the Zulus when when the hospital's on fire, the roof collapsing in, the Zulus are broken in, and it's Hook that pulls him to the rescue. In real life, Hook was a model soldier. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure if he was just stationed at the at the supplier depot or whether or not he was in hospital. But if he, if he was in hospital, it was for legitimate reasons. It wasn't because he was malingering with a boy on his back as made out in, in the, in the film. And to such an extent was the different portrayal in the film to in real life that his family refused to attend the premiere. Really? Oh, because wow. of the, 
the way in which he had been betrayed in that manner. Yeah. I suppose um, that would have been quite upsetting, actually, wouldn't it? If, you know, yeah. Yeah, because he's one of the VCs as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It, it, so I don't know why they necessarily picked on Hook to be that individual, but yeah, he, that that that's the that's the biggest discrepancy of, mm-hmm. of of the film. There's a few others. So, for example, um, the location that the film set in is it's set up in the Drakensbergs. Mm-hmm. in the mountains uh that, that 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 that's purely done for an artistic point of view to yeah. give it a, a to give it a lovely um backdrop rather yeah, than exactly. actually just flat flat plain land it, that that that's purely done for that also they make the the fold and the bridge a lot closer but again that's that artistic license because if you've got it on top of each other from a cinematic point of view it works if you if you're suddenly trying to purvey a mile away you lose you lose a bit of the cinematic so again that, that that's one of those things that you, you kind of just have to take with a pinch of salt and say they've done it for purely from a cinematic reason likewise putting that backdrop put it, putting it up in the drakensbergs you've got these big tabbing mountains over the top that look stunning rather than it just being a whole heap of blue sky yeah, but again, such a fantastic movie. I love it so much. I mean, I haven't watched yeah. it for about a year. I think last time I watched it was about 12 months ago. But um, yeah. I know it was on over Christmas in the UK. Um, and a lot of, uh, you know, um, I mean, a lot of history groups and there was a lot of chatter about it. So, uh, um, and, and WhatsApp and this, that and the other. So, yeah, um, exciting uh, uh, from a certain, and, and not just from younger people, but from people from that era, because they remember it, you know, then when it came out, you know. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things that you need to add, and it, it, this goes to with a lot of films, really, about historical things. So, uh, yeah, over o- over Christmas, um, there was a lot. The Dan Bus was on Longest Day, like you name it. Go through the Second World War was on. The way I see films like this, and I've changed my view on it a little bit. I've actually mellowed from the historian's point of view. Mm-hmm. This gives people access to history. Exactly. Yep. It might not be correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. But something like Zulu, it gives access to the history for people who maybe wouldn't necessarily pick up a history book. But they'll watch a film and go, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to find out a bit more about that. Yeah, it's like a gateway drug, isn't it? It's like Gettysburg the movie was, for me, this yeah. would have Sh- been... Sharp I, I for- this film probably got a lot of people into history you know through yeah. the years you know like you've said on many occasions the gettysburg film got you into the american civil war for me getting into napoleonics was all about sharp yeah you know exactly. same thing is the gateway not, drug yeah not necessarily okay gettysburg is like probably a, he, he's more historically correct than sharp is yeah but it gives you that it's that hook that gets you that mm. gets you into something that you then go and pick up a book or back in the day go and buy another buy, buy a documentary video or hit youtube and find the podcast on it these days or something like that it, it's just that it, it gives you that accessibility but um moving on mate uh any book recommendations on this period of history that you yourself have read and that you would recommend to other people to read yeah i've got I, I, <laughs> I, 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 i've got a few here so first one I use quite a lot in this series, is, um, which is the Battle Story series. Um, fair, fairly small book, fairly easy going. So if you're really like, if if you 
if you've watched Zulu over Christmas, you thought you want to learn a bit more about it, you've watched this podcast, you want a bit more info, this is your one. Like I say, for anyone who knows a, a fair bit about the battle, I'd probably say not not the best book, a bit light for you, but as an introductory book, very, very good. Um, and then you've got two big hitting books. So both of them by, uh, by the historian Saul David. So he's actually got this one, Zulu, which tells us all the story about the Zulu War. And you can see from the size of it, just how um, in, into detail he goes. Yeah in comparison to the other one. And then this one as well. So it's Victoria's Wars um, by Saul David as well. Um, doesn't really have any... Because he wrote the Zulu as well, he doesn't actually cover that much on the Zulu Wars. But if you want to get an insight into the grander scheme of the imperial, imperial wars of Victorian Britain, that's a very good shout. It goes into... Um, for example, there's a lot on Afghanistan and um, Egypt and the Sudan. So if you're inter- if you if you if you like your dad's army and want to follow Jones's stories all over the place, that's your one. So mm-hmm. um, for that period, they're the three. You're also, you've you've you, you've you've got you, you've got your obvious choices as well. You've got your Osprey series. It's like they do is Andalina and Walks Drift. Um, again, if you are just touching the period they're a great starting point as well because they give you plenty of pictures, plenty of maps. You can really understand it. A little bit light on his, on historiography. But you know what? That that comes A lot comes down to the reader. You yeah. know, and I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, you must read this one because it's 500 pages long and it, it is covered all X, Y, and Z sources, stuff like that. If you're just starting out your historical journey or if you're sort of looking into a period for the first time sometimes you need that 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 nice light one just to get you going so i'd always recommend osprey up there as well um within my book selections book recommendations um also there is a battle series on dvd i i i had them all on uh, vhs um, then I've got some converted from D- to DVD. I can't remember the name. Bat- Battle through history or something like that. Conflicts in yeah. time um, series. Um, they're quite old now. Quite um, when you watch them, you're sort of like, my God, this looks the the production looks really bad on these. But they're they're quite good as well if you can, if you can lay your hands on them. I know there's a there is a Zulu Wars one available. Yeah. And uh, I just want to bring up um, one thing before we move on to a um, completely different subject. Um, if you ever want to visit Chard's uh, grave, uh, you, that is very accessible. And the uh, location of that is Hatch Beecham in Somerset, Church of St. John the Baptist. Um, I uh, stopped there. It's a, um, well, you had to come off the A303 a little bit. Um, but I was on my way down to Great Torrent in 2022. And my friend said to me, well, let's you know, I can take you there. I know how to get there. And we did, we stopped there. And that is my picture. Um, did a little video for American Civil War and UK history as well. Um, Facebook page at the time, but yeah, so um, that's the location of that. So that's worth a little visit. Um, obviously a BC recipient as well. Um, okay, Mark, let's have a, uh, an update on uh, Mark's English history channel. What, what you got uh, lined up for the coming year? Cause uh, Mark does have his own YouTube channel and, uh, and that. So, um, you had, do you have your own podcast as well, don't you? Yeah, if we got, so I've got the YouTube channel. Um, yeah. I, I put some stuff out on 
the podcasting side of things and um, the buzzsprout stuff but um i tend to stay away from it because a lot of the things that i tend to do are on the ground visits mm-hmm. and yeah. videos so sort of if you just do it as an audio um file you can't no i, I i'm describing what i'm seeing if you get yeah. what i mean and so I, I tend less to do sort of sit down i don't do sit down tracks like what what, what you do does so um I tend, uh, when I do sort of more presentation, you saw PowerPoint talks, stuff like that, then I, then I pop them on there. But for a lot of my stuff, I don't. So, um, so coming up, I've got some, uh, I've got a new series about to come out. I've done a bit of processing on some of them, um, which was from footage I shot back in October when I went, when I visited the Somme. Mm-hmm. Um, I've put out a couple so far which were an extension of the Walkabout series which was one of my visits to Agincourt and Cressy um, I put them out first because they were they're more standard I know it's easier to, to deal with but I have got um, my Walk in the Somme series coming out um, I don't know when I'm going to drop them to be honest um, that's something I need, I, need, I need to get myself more organised on doing videos I must admit Um but yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll be coming out. I think I've got about four or five maybe of those to, to come out. Yeah. Um, other than that, this year, I've, I, I, I haven't really got much in the pipeline at the minute. I'm still trying to figure out what visits and what, um, what events I'll, I'll, I'll be looking at um, to do. I've obviously, I've got some shot from a couple of years ago, which was the um, Normandy 44 series they'll probably i'll probably redrop them repost them out around the anniversary because it's 80, 80th anniversary of d-day this coming this year mm-hmm. so um, they'll they'll probably come out again just to um just as as we move through that that period other than that no not not too much obviously i've started writing my um my corner of a foreign field articles yeah so i was going to get on to that so on um, your website um, um the, Mark has got space on on the American Civil War and UK History's uh, website, which will include, does include Mark's English History Channel. So you can go directly to some of Mark's stuff through that avenue if you don't go through it on his, you know, YouTube channel. Um, Straight from YouTube, you can find links there. So there is space for that. But Mark has started this new blog um, weekly blog posts. So, just again, sorry for cut you cutting you off there, but just explain a little bit behind that, please, mate. Yeah, so it's a corner of a foreign field. So, a lot of the stuff that gets posted on Daddy's site, um, obviously, we are it is American Civil War and UK history, but it is predominantly more of American Civil War or American history than than British, really. So, I wanted to just just to tie up with some stuff that that's regular posted from the american point of view to look at the british point of view and a lot of the stuff when we do post it's these big famous events so we we we've obviously done Brooks drift today i know in the pipeline we discussed about doing the waterloo episode um later this year and possibly a battle of someone although i know that's um that's all what that's always a tricky one because of the date for the first day of the Somme falls on the first day, the same day as the first day of Gettysburg. So I know it's always, yeah. always a bit of a clash on, on, <clears throat> on, on for, for space on that one. Um, but also I wanted to look at um, 
a number of different things. Um, the la this last year, I've really got back into looking at Great War history. And one of the things that I sort of come to realise is these battles that we know from the Great, from the Great War, the Somme, um, Ypres, places like that, they're huge battles. So let, let's try and tell some more stories. Let's try and find out a bit more about the unit-sized battles that take place with it. Like, you look at the Battle of Somme, you look at a 20-mile front, and yet we try to tell that story in one go, for the most part. So actually, let's drill down. Let's fight. Let, 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 let's write. Let's look at articles and write a piece about the Ulster Division at, on the Tipval Heights, um, the, one of the few units to actually take their objective for the Schwaben Redoubt. Let's look at um, various different sectors around the Ypres Salient. Like, the Ypres Salient stays pretty much in situ for four years, and yet it's like a rolling tide coming in and out, gradually Germans pushing closer to it, Brit British Army pushing them back again. And so rather than just looking at it as a, a, a one single battle, let's look into these more detailed segments. And that's where I wanted to go with it. And I can obviously move around as much as I want. So one week I'll be looking at second, uh, the British in um, in North America, for example, in in the French Indian Wars, and then the and then the next week I'll look at I can go to, to um, the parachute regiment in the Falkland Islands. Mm -hmm. So it, 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 it's such a wide aspect that can that can be used. But yeah, and I just think that sort of something like a regular weekly article, it can be a couple of hundred words. My biggest problem with what I'm doing at the moment, especially the videos, it just takes up so much time. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it's kind of, that's why it goes months upon months between releases coming out. And so I look at it and think, okay, how can I, how can I get, how can I increase engagement? And the way I did that before was on the Instagram page doing the on this days, but that's so time consuming. It's ridiculous to keep putting out a post every day like it's great to put out a post every day but it, it does take a lot out of you and in, in the end to be honest all you was getting was the same few likes anyway so there's actually the engagement on it can be pretty low so um it, it it's just a way of sort of moving the channel to something a bit a bit where more what i would like it to be if i in, in my dream world yeah um I am an acad academic historian you are, um, yeah. by trade. Um, so it doing just little posts here and there, it kind of does, it, 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 it does feel a bit amateurish at times. And so being able to then move on to the website and to actually write articles and blog posts and things like that, it just sort of, it just, ups that ante a little bit and so it, it, it's still to coincide with the um with the history channel with the videos um it's just that like i say where i f where, where finding time to do them is a struggle um it just gives me the opportunity to write regularly or po po post regular 
regular content with it being a lot easier because I can just come home, boom, 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 half an hour, half an hour to an hour's worth, hours worth of writing, done. So, um, yeah, you can read uh, Mark's uh, blog post on the website. Um, a link will be in the description. And like I said, links to uh, Mark's English History Channel. But again, you will find that with inside the website as well. Uh, but all that's left to say is thank you very much again, Mark. I appreciate you uh, giving up your time to come and uh, talk about the, the, uh, uh, the Zulu Wars. And uh, yeah, we'll no see you problem. again soon. Yeah, see you, see, see, see you soon. Bye-bye.